A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer. Welcome to The Chemical Show. This week, I am speaking with Dr. Jennifer Holmgren, who is the CEO of Lonzatech, an innovative carbon capture and transformation company that turns waste carbon into materials such as sustainable fuels, fabrics, packaging, and other products that people use in their everyday life. Lonzatech is making quite a name for itself, and I'm excited to have Jennifer here. Jennifer is a member of the National Academy of Engineering. And one of the things, Jennifer, I've got to say that's super impressive about that. I'm like, I know that's impressive, but I went and I looked and you actually have to be nominated by your peers, right? So this is not something you apply to. It's a great recognition from peers. And I think that's something that people um, should also appreciate as we talk here. And Jennifer is the author of more than 50 patents. So she is a leader. She is an innovator. And Jennifer has been credited with developing the first low carbon drop-in aviation fuels um, and has received widespread recognition for her achievements. So I'm super excited to have her here today. Jennifer, welcome to The Chemical Show. Thank you so much, Victoria. Really honored to have the chance to speak with you. Likewise, likewise. So how did you get started on this journey? When did you first realize the importance of carbon and specifically carbon capture and transformation? Like, was there a moment that changed everything for you? Yeah, I would say there was a moment that opened my eyes to the climate crisis. So in my prior role, I I spent a lot of time thinking about energy democracy. I spent a lot of time thinking about the fact that, you know, 15 years ago, 1.3 billion people did not have access to power. And when you imagine a world without power and how do you get water? How do you refrigerate? How do you do any of these things? How do you read a book at night? You realize that there's this massive disconnect that power will bring us together and and equalize us. And so I was really super interested in, in energy democracy. But then I read an article. So I was born in Colombia and I read an article about the fact that climate change left unabated would mean that by 2050, Colombia would not be a coffee grower. I need my coffee. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. and But 2050 is within our lifetimes, right? I always heard of climate change as our great grandchildren, our children, you know, but Nobody ever said our lifetime. So here is something that was fundamental to me, where I was born, what I like to drink, and it was going to happen in our lifetime. And it also made me appreciate that climate change was going to be a fundamental change to our ecosystem, not just, you know, sea level rise, which is a big deal, but I didn't fully appreciate it. And so that mentally transitioned me from, okay, energy democracy to clean energy democracy, that solving the energy crisis or the energy problems wasn't going to be good enough. And so that's how I mentally went to, oh my God, climate change. That's the big gorilla in the room. Yeah. But then on carbon capture and transformation, what you start to realize is that we have a very linear carbon economy. Take it out of the ground, use it, dump it in the air. 
And what I started to realize is, wait a second, there is so much carbon above ground already. Nature is circular. Why can't we just use all of that carbon? And that's how then we shifted to carbon capture and transformation. That's amazing. It is interesting, the whole, the recognition, right? As you say, in our lifetime, there may be a significant shift and that's, that is eye-opening. So what drew you to Lonza Tech? So you've been leading Lonza Tech, which I heard somebody recently say it's, you know, an old startup and it feels that way because <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, it's been around for what, almost two decades and you've been leading it for close to a dozen years. Exactly. So the company was founded in 2005. We, I came over in 2010. And, you know, really the reason I moved over is, as I mentioned, I, I've been really thinking about climate and carbon. And I was doing a lot of work with biofuels. You mentioned I started up the drop-in sustainable aviation fuels and showed that that was possible. And, you know, when I was doing that work, we were trying to always chase the right feedstock. We all recognize that conventional biological first generation kind of feedstocks would contribute. But you're not going to get 100 million barrels of production capacity a day, which is what the petroleum industry is, right? Right. Massive disconnect between conventional biofeedstocks and the petrochemical complex that we depend on. And so what I... um realized when I, Sean Simpson, the founder of Lancetech and Vinod Kosla, its largest investor, when they introduced me to Lancetech and the bacteria that could eat carbon monoxide, hydrogen, carbon dioxide, it was sort of like, holy sh**, you know, <laughs> there is enough of that stuff locked up in waste that we could actually get to the massive scales of the petrochem complex. And so I was actually on a journey to retire <laughs> and I saw this and I thought, you know, this could be something, this could be relevant and could have a massive implications. So I went ahead and said, okay, I'll do this. I'll do it for a couple of years. A dozen years later, here I am. Wow. That's impressive. So tell us a little bit about Lanzatech's technology. How does this work? So it's, it's a bacteria. Is that right? Yep. Yep. And so the way to think about Lancetech is you're used to fermenting sugars, right? That's how we make beer and wine. And what Lancetech does is it ferments gases, hydrogen, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. And so it's exactly the same thing as it's a typical fermentation, but it's not yeast and it's not sugar. It's a bacteria and it's gases. What's really interesting is it is a continuous process. So it's like a refinery process. The chemistry happens quickly. So you're used to making beer. You put it in a vat. You let it ferment for a few months. Come back. You get beer. Here, you get beer in seconds. And so that lends itself to something that has the ability to really scale because it happens so quickly. Yeah, that's interesting because I have spoken with a couple of leaders who are working in like the biosurfactant space, and those are batch processes primarily, right? So you're inherently limited based on the size of the kit that you can build and the level of reactivity and, and other things. And yet to get to a continuous process, similar to what we experience in much of the chemical industry, is a game changer. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it means you have to get the engineering right because it is such a different system than conventional fermentation. Think of it as a marriage of refining and petrochem and conventional fermentation. We have to bring both of those things together. So you kind of said, well, you know, you guys have been around for 17 years. That's a long time. It takes a long time to scale a disruptive technology. <laughs> and so this is why. 
it's it's biology and engineering both have to be disrupted, both have to be different, and we have to bring it all together. Interesting. And I was actually going to start in a different place, but let's start talking about partnership. When I think about Lonza Tech, there seems to be three fundamentals to Lonza Tech success. So innovation, yeah. partnership, and persistence, right? As you say, it, it doesn't happen overnight. So let's talk a little bit about partnerships because that seems to have been really critical to both persistence and innovation, right? And you've made a lot of progress through partnerships with industry-leading companies and even consumer brands such as Danone and Zara, which I mean, apparently people could go out and buy some Lanzatech-originated product and clothing. But why is partnerships important to you and how did you kind of come to figuring that out? Well, if you think of a startup company, right, there's only so much core knowledge and capability and people and resources that we can have, right? And so partnerships help us in a couple of ways. One is they bring the core knowledge of the company to bear and all of the resources. BASF, for example, is an investor and a partner, right? Look at the knowledge they bring in the chemical sector. So that really helps us. And then on the back end, working with the Zaras and the Danones helps us understand the entire supply chain. How do they get product? You know, a small company can figure all these things out, but boy, it takes a long time. And actually, what most people don't realize is you might figure it out wrong. A lot of the domain knowledge is actually know-how. It's not written anywhere. It's not understood. It's not published. And so you might actually try to figure it out yourself. It's not the same as working with somebody who's been doing it for 100 years and has learned how to put it all together. So I would say partnerships are central to everything we do. Yeah. Was it hard to get those first partnerships established? It's always harder. <laughs> it is always harder at the beginning. After a while, you know, as soon as Zara says, this is what we're doing, or Danone says, this is what we're doing, everybody picks up the phone and says, what? How can we work with you? But before that, you know, while you're establishing yourself, it does take a lot of convincing. But what I have always found is that if you go to the top, right, you get to people who can imagine the same thing you're imagining and then they make it happen. And so you have to work at different levels in an organization. You have to work at the worker level because at the end of the day, without their buy-in, nothing's ever going to happen. Absolutely. Right? But you also have to work at the top where they can imagine a different world. And their job, you know, a lot of people say that CEOs of large corporations have to focus on next quarter, right? But they're the visionaries. They're the ones who are thinking, okay, but what do I want this company to be after I leave? And they can imagine a different future. And they're always willing to bet then on new approaches. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So you're very experienced in this. What characteristics make a good partner or a good partnership? I think the most important thing is shared vision. You have to align on what the outcome has to be. What are you trying to achieve? And you have to make sure that you agree that the path, the how, isn't necessarily set yet. Because if it's an early partner and you're developing something new, there might be course correction. So you need partners who are willing to course correct with you rather than fight you on the course correction. So alignment and vision, understanding that how to get there is not yet defined. And also, I think understanding that new things can take a lot longer than you expect and plan. So having a partner who's patient and understands the need to be patient, which is also why alignment at every level of the organization is important, because you don't want 
your champion inside that other organization to run afoul of, well, you haven't delivered this yet, right? You want to support them. And so that means you support with every level. Yeah, that's interesting. And I've talked with a couple of folks about this. It seems like, especially right now, when we start talking about green technology, carbon capture, some of the innovations that derive a more sustainable future, a lot of the innovation happens in smaller companies, such as Lanza Tech. And yet the larger companies, BASF, Stanone, Zaras, whomever, have the footprint, the wherewithal, the capability to really test it in the market, apply more resources, et cetera. And yet there's this risk of a bit of a David and Goliath and maybe sometimes a fear that this big company is going to take over and overwhelm, either just want to take over, right? Or overwhelm your efforts. How do you strike that balance? How have you guys thought about that? Actually, you know, I don't know that you can strike that balance very easily and that it is very company specific. How you deal with each individual company is different. I actually used to say, yeah, it's a little bit like dancing with an elephant, right? And you have to just be careful. But again, if if your vision is aligned and you respect each other, because that's the other thing, you don't want a relationship where somebody comes in they're the big gorilla, they know they're the big gorilla, and they're going to tell you what to do. If there is no mutual trust, no mutual respect, then you really are going to run into a problem as a small company. But I would tell you that you can tell from the early discussions, you can tell in the joint development agreements, you can tell from the very beginning that maybe this is one you want to walk away from, or this is one you want to do. And I think the biggest concern is that a lot of small companies don't create a pipeline. And so they depend on one company. And when you depend on one company, you can run into a lot of trouble for all the reasons we've just discussed. So let's turn back over to innovation. You know, and innovation is obviously central to you and to Lanza Tech, but what does that really mean? What does that look like for you in Lanza Tech? How do you guys think about innovation? How do you foster innovation inside the company? Yeah, you know that. That's hard. This is very difficult because innovation in the first five years versus years 15 to 20 are very different, right? Right? You get into a point where you can let the perfect be there, maybe the good. You want to re-optimize and redo rather than get the first commercial up and running and optimize there. There's a lot of things like that that happen. From fostering an innovation culture, I would say, first of all, Sean Simpson, the founder of Lancetech, is an incredible man, an incredibly innovative, incredible scientist, and he's always pushing the envelope. And that leads to the science team, which he manages to always be pushing the envelope. But it also sets a tone for the rest of the company, right? Because they follow the example. From my side, I also try to always push the envelope and ask why. Why are you doing it that way? Can you do it in a different way? Can we reduce the cost by doing it in a different way? But really, I think creating a culture of innovation means that every one of your leaders needs to create that culture. You would say you can't be innovative in finance, but actually you can. You can develop new ways of doing agreements, right? So the business, the finance, and the science, and the engineering all have to be innovative, but you have to be able to stop them from over-innovating because otherwise you'll never build anything. So, you know, you have to be able to say, okay, that's enough. That's good enough. 
get it out there, get it out there and we'll do the next generation. I would also add one other thing, which I think is really important. If you look at my management team, everybody's different. They look different. They're from a different background, different capability. And I think that's the other thing that fosters innovation is not having a homogeneous company, not at the leadership level, not at the middle management level, and not at the individual contributor level. I think that is, to be honest, I think the biggest distinguishing feature of Lancetech is we don't look like anybody else. That's awesome. And it's true. You know, if you just look at Lanza Tech, for instance, on uh, LinkedIn and look at the people in the company, it is quite a diverse group. It is striking the number of women in leadership positions, which is not typical in the startup ecosystem. And it's not typical in the chemical world. And as well as, you know, people of different backgrounds and different skin colors and different points of view and, and variety of things. So I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. You know, you talk about stopping innovation at some point so that you can implement that. How do you guys think about that innovation process and making sure that you don't kill off innovation too soon, nor let it persist too long? A view that I think one of the reasons, for instance, I think that we're seeing a lot of partnerships from larger companies and smaller innovative companies is because it's really hard inside big companies to innovate in a way that it makes a difference, right? So I feel like innovations get killed off very quickly, potentially in large companies because of the rules and the regs and the size requirements and what have you of these ideas. And yet by the same token, it can be dangerous if you don't stop, if you've pointed out of saying, okay, that's enough creativity, it's time to move on. How do you know when it's time to say, hey, let's go test this out, let's move forward? Actually, you don't. I think I think it's an organic process. I think you say, okay, this piece is ready. Let's test it at the next scale. But in the meantime, you don't actually stop innovation. You just stop that prototype. There's still innovation in the background. And that innovation in the background is really important because you've stopped at a prototype, you go to the next scale, and then it's like, ooh, that's not quite what we expected at that scale. So in the background, you've had innovation going on and optimization that you could then adapt quickly into that prototype. So you don't actually stop. What you have to say is, we have enough to go to the next scale, continue with your work, and then let's see if it needs to save us or if it's what we're going to do next. So it's not actually stopping innovation. I do want to comment on your large versus small company because you you hit a point about stopping too soon, potentially. And what I think is really important, Victoria, is Lancetech has raised $500 million. We got here by spending $500 million, okay? And there is no large company that has ever focused on an idea, gas fermentation, (laughs) okay? And put $500 million to work, right? and hundreds of people, right? And actually, most people don't think about that because they think, well, a big company, they can put hundreds of millions of dollars. This big company's got a billion-dollar R&D budget, but they're doing hundreds of things. And over 17 years and $500 million, that's how we got to where we got. You cannot do that on a big company. I've never seen that done at a big company. Yeah, that's a great perspective because you're right. There is this assumption that big companies have big resources, but the resources are very splintered sometimes as opposed to having a smaller sandbox, if you will, a singular focus to, and getting everybody aligned on some of the same 
challenges and problems and solution sets that you're looking for. Interesting. So Jennifer, you know, yourself have been a very prolific innovator. You've got 50 patents. You've obviously spent a lot of time throughout your career being innovative and innovative in a technical way. How did you transition from being the doer and the innovator to being the leader, right? As the CEO, you've got to some ways separate yourself. And certainly now as Lonza Tech has gotten much more recognition and as you've joined with a SPAC to help, you know, raise more funds and go public eventually, I suppose. How have you made that personal transition in leadership? That's a good question. I think it's baby steps, to be honest. You know, started with always being in the lab to making the case for other people to be in the lab, to do new things, to eventually leading a business unit, creating and leading a business unit, and then transferring to Lanzatech. So I think it's been steps. And to be honest, I think it's been a career that's been totally unplanned. (laughs) Yeah, it's been about, okay, but there's a hole there. Maybe I can fill it. And then you go this way. Yeah, it's always been that way in my life. It's maybe, yeah, okay, I can do that. I can make that happen. And then, you know, eventually that becomes my new job. Yeah, interesting. So identifying opportunities and being willing to step in and step up. Yeah. That's important. I think that's a good lesson for people as well, to be able to do that and not be afraid to do that. So when we think about sustainability, carbon capture, the economics are challenging right? You've already talked about the fact that Lanzatech has spent $500 million over 17 years to get to commercial technologies, some of which have spun off successfully, for instance, Lanzajet. And what I see today is, you know, companies are setting aggressive targets. Consumers are very willing to speak about sustainability and the importance of sustainability and recycling and renewable packaging or renewable fuels. And yet the actual cost of this And who's going to pay for it still seems to be an open issue. How do you think about that? You know, and you're deep in the heart of this. Like, how do you envision this playing forward? First of all, I always tell people, don't ask me about being cost competitive, right? Because that's, the, in my mind, the wrong question to ask, right? If you don't consider the externalities and you consider the fact that the petrochemical industry is a hundred and maybe more years old, right? It's very hard to say that new technologies and new approaches are going to get down the cost curve in such a way that they will be cost competitive. And in fact, I get very unhappy when that question gets asked because it has pushed some of other companies that do some of the same things we're trying to do over the edge because they've overcommitted. They're like, oh yeah, we're going to be cost competitive by, you know, next year. And you aren't. And so people are being forced to make commitments they can't meet and not to just go into it with eyes wide open, right? And I think that's a failure mode of new technologies and new industries. So I think we all have to be realistic and grounded in the fact we will not compete with 150-year-old industry. We will not compete on day one. We will become competitive. We believe in a day where externalities will be priced. And we believe in partners who are willing to be first And to either they themselves pay more or introduce our products into things that have enough of a margin Mm. that 
they can add a little extra. So it really is, again, goes back to the same question you asked me earlier. It's about finding the right partners. Eventually, we'll go down the cost curve. Eventually, we'll be cost competitive. Eventually, we won't have to compete with an industry that doesn't consider externalities. All of these things will happen. Until then, we need the right partners who are willing to absorb a little bit of the extra cost, who are willing to sell to consumers, who are also willing to absorb a little bit of the cost. And together, we will create a new ecosystem, a new way of life, a new way of making the things we need and use. Yeah. Interesting. That's good. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think one of the things I personally struggle with, certainly when I look at consumer products companies that are making promises that we will have 50% renewable content in all of our products by 2030 in some cases. And and I sit here baffled. In the, I don't think we have the technology yet to sufficiently scaled to be able to offer that on a widespread case. When we think about some of the, res- the, the circularity, we don't have the, the circular feedstocks available, right? To me, that's where some of the challenges are. I think we're doing it. And maybe it's the order, the appropriate sequency that we have to have the technology and then we figure out the feedstock and the feedstock infrastructure. How do you think about that? Because I mean, this is a, this is a challenge that I think we're facing on a, across a broad number of areas. You're absolutely right. So there's a couple of ways to think about it. So first of all, I always believe that you've got to create an environment where you're going to, you got to skate to where the puck is going. And the problem is that sometimes it doesn't get there. (laughs) You know, you have to be really careful. You have to set really, really aggressive targets because you will always miss your target. Okay. There is no way that you will ever make your target. And I know that that's not what people want to hear, but if you set a very mild target that you know you can easily achieve, you still will probably miss it. <laughs> and so it's better to shoot really forward, okay? You shoot for the moon and miss it by 10%, you're way better off than shooting for you know the next three and missing it by 2%. So I think we have to be really aggressive and we have to support companies that are very aggressive. I do think though we have to be careful that we're not in la-la land, you know, that magically, you know, feedstock is going to appear out of nowhere and be available. And so I think there's a balance between really being aggressive, but being realistic in what does it take to reach that goal? What has to happen? So you need some really good planning, but you also need to be very aggressive in your planning. I'm really excited about what I see from consumer brands. It used to be they set 2050 targets, right? And like you said, now they're setting 2030 targets and they have roadmaps for those. And I've seen them adjust the roadmaps as feedstocks don't become available. So I think all of a sudden, instead of, okay, I'm going to do this by, you know, 50 years from now, they've actually got roadmaps and they're actually planning. And every year they adjust and make progress. I've been, the partners we've been working with have just impressed me you know, and what they're willing to do, what they're willing to try. And they understand it's baby steps. Got it. Interesting. That's fascinating. So Jennifer, what's next for you and Lonza Tech? Well, I think for us, what we really need to do is go much more quickly. So, you know, we're starting to get to that exponential part of the curve. We now have two commercial plants running. We're building another seven plants. We've got seven in engineering right now. We're starting to get to that inflection point 
we want to capitalize on that. We want to make sure that there are no delays. Right now, you know, supply chains are heck and it's a mess, but we don't want that to slow us down. So we're trying to think of more innovative ways to deliver our technology so we can build all these plants. And then that's going to be a flywheel, right? Once we have more plants, we have more product. Once we have more product, we can make more, you know, Zara dresses and, and everything works well. I think the other thing I'm really excited about is the synthetic biology. I honestly believe that the future is about the selectivity that biology can bring to the conversion of waste. Today, we make ethanol, but we can make acetone, we can make isopropanol, we can make octanol. All of a sudden, you can imagine this distributed units using waste feedstocks, making all of the chemicals you're used to. Whenever the price of acetone is high, you make acetone. You can't do that in the petrochem industry. And the reason that's important is because you asked me about being competitive. We cannot compete in today's playing field and be successful. We got to create a new one and compete there, right? So when we change the way commodities are made, Nobody's going to say, well, you have to have the same capital and operating costs because we bring different advantages of selectivity of feedstock. So that's what's next for us. And we want to go public because the conversations, I don't know how many people believe that carbon capture and transformation can matter, right? And I think in the public market, we can show people that this matters and with our partners, right, create success. That's what we need. Shine a light on carbon capture and transformation. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think that's right. And we need to get it to the next generation. So I was having, just before we got on this call, I was talking to my daughter who's 15. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all these energy companies care about is making money. We were we were listening to a strategy podcast yesterday. That's how we get geeked out in my house. <laughs> and it was this whole aspect of all anybody cares about is making money. And yet, what about the world? And what about, you know, we need to be looking at environmental sustainability. We need to be finding new solutions. We need to be figuring this out. I said, ah, I said, I'm talking to Jennifer Holmgren. I think you would be really interested in what she's doing, but but it's the whole figuring out. And I know this is where you guys are working. And I know you've brought um, Steve Stanley on board, I presume, to help move, you know, help license technology and move it forward faster so that it gets into more people's hands, into more companies' hands and can make a bigger impact. And by going public, you can change that dialogue and have more funding to do the things you need to do. That's right. That's what we hope. And we thank people like you who are shining a light on what we're doing, who are helping us get there, Victoria. I hope so. I hope so. Well, Jennifer, this has been really wonderful. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Victoria. And thanks everyone for listening to The Chemical Show. We will talk to you again soon. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.